Hey guys, this is Bub. This is the second episode of the Bub on Purpose podcast. My intention with this podcast is really to help guide and inspire young people to find their passions and purpose. I'll talk with people of all ages who have developed their life purpose and who who I think can inspire, offer advice, share techniques for developing purpose and articulate their perspectives. You can think of this podcast as a combination of many things like anything else, but one being the show that aired a while back with Mike Rowe called Dirty Jobs, in that he he talked to people to find out where they found meaning in their work. You can also think of the Tim Ferriss show, a podcast in which he interviews people to to find out what what makes people good at what they do and techniques and tactics for being better at what you want to be good at. And the third thing that I would compare this podcast to at this point would be Ikigai. That's spelled I-K-I-G-A-I. And it's both a book and a Japanese concept. And the concept really means a reason for being. And you can think of it as um, a personal philosophy to live by. Um, Really finding your ikigai means finding what you love, combining that with what the world needs, what you can be paid for, and what you're good at. So I'm going to interview people to to see where they have meaning, where they've created meaning, where they found purpose, and what they're passionate about, because I think we can all be inspired by that as well as learn from that. So I hope you guys enjoy. I imagine this podcast will evolve over time. Of course, I'll get better at the interviewing process, but right now I'm just excited to dive in and learn my learn myself and share with you guys those learnings. So if you're here, this is the early stages and I, I really appreciate you for listening and I hope I hope you enjoy it. This episode with TJ, we really just jump right into it. I'm I'm learning how to start a podcast, but kind of just jump into the conversation. Um and I think he has a lot to teach. He's he's occupationally an investor but he's also been meditating for a while and he's um, quite a smart guy he he went to Stanford studying economics in his undergrad and then he ended up going to the business school at Stanford as well for the graduate program but he he's a fascinating guy and has a lot of things to teach so I hope you enjoy and Thank you for listening. Why I'm wanting to interview you is to because I I think you have like a a passion or a drive that not many people have that I see. And so I'm curious what what creates that drive for you? Like I don't know what originally created it, whether like when you're twenty, what was your perspective? And then what is your perspective now when you wake up in the morning? Like why do you why do you why do you do what you do still? You know what I mean? Good. I, I hope I figure it out in the next hour. That would make my life a lot easier. Good stuff. Have you figured out all these questions for you yet? Um, 
I you, think you, you, you're 22 though, right? Yeah, I'm 22. All right. Um, I think my what gets me up is a curiosity to learn. Yeah. Just so I, I mean, I've been thinking about it recently that like, if my mind is where I live, like my mentally, then if I have an understanding of the world that's this small. Yeah. Then I have this much space to go around in. Yeah. So if I can expand that space, then I'm less trapped, I guess, and yeah. can think in I, different I ways. Completely get that. Yeah. 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 One of the things I really respect about you is your curiosity, which is great. Yeah, I think that. Thank you. I think that's. It's a good way to go through life. Yeah. The is that what you were thinking about? Um, surely you're joking, Mister Feynman. How he yeah. just like. I mean, he was super successful at um, that, the uh, t- splitting, splitting the atom from the atomic or, bomb. Yeah, just quantum physics, he did that, but just figuring out the probability and, yeah, he, he saw things other people didn't, mm-hmm. just because he, he had a different way of thinking. And I think having a different way of thinking, it's, it's all like exercise, you know? If you really, if you really want to run the mile fast, just a bunch of exercises, you, you need natural talent. Yeah. The guys who train the best. I think being curious trains your minds to see things differently. Mm-hmm. I think that gives you clarity that other people may not. If you don't question yourself, I'm not quite sure you can see the world as clearly as as you should. Mm-hmm. What What would you say is your? How do you think differently than most people? Well, first of all, I think we all think differently. Yeah, of course. I, I think I just don't accept things. I, I just, and again, it's always sort of been with me. And, and, and just letting go and trying to figure out why. Just asking the question, why? Mm-hmm. And so, I, you know, why if I do, you know, and I always, I always try to begin with the end in mind. And I, I just think it's really important to listen to people we don't understand or we disagree because... We, we're just missing something. Yeah. Um, but go ahead. Yeah. Um, is, is that what gets you up in the morning, you think? Or, or specifically, because you're, I mean, you tell me more the correct lingo, but you're a hedge fund capital I'm an investor. In, investor. I'm an investor, yeah. And so how does that tie into... Why you get up? Yeah, I think what I've always done. There's a lot of people who are really good at common knowledge and what they've done. I think one of something we share is the stuff I do is I get a kick out of finding a way to look at something differently than other people, mm-hmm. and then figuring out a way how to execute it and make something out of it. Yeah, it's boring and mundane, and it is. About 15 years ago, I sort of looked at Canada and noticed that their apartments and their student housing and senior housing and mobile housing was like the United States this was in 1980. Mm-hmm. And I spent about a couple of years just going down there and trying to figure out why. Mm-hmm. And once I understood why, it was fun to build out a team and platforms and be able to execute on, on something. And, and that, of course, it probably fluctuates your, like, your drive to continue that or what I think it's fun. I love growing something. The other thing I've learned, you know, from twenty to sixty is whether it's religion, sport teams or family, 
-hmm. We're all at our best when there's something bigger than ourselves. Mm -hmm. If we can let go of self, being part of the Broncos nation when they won the Super Bowl, seeing the game, that transcends just being by yourself. Mm -hmm. Having a family, your first child, you're not thinking about yourself yourself when that baby's handed to you. So I think one of the things we're we're just wired for, it's in the helix of our DNA, is we have this longing to be part of something bigger. And I view my firms as family. There's something that I care more about than myself. And it's fun to watch them grow and organically and you know, it's 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 a great community. So that keeps me passionate. I love the ideas. And I've learned to love the execution. I've learned over the last 40 years how to execute. Probably over the last 25 years I've learned how to execute. Mm-hmm. But it's fun. You know, it's just seeing something other people yeah. didn't and finding a way to execute. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I feel like the times when I'm most lost in the enjoyment of life, I guess, is when I have... It's mainly when I have people around me that are... I'm lost in the people, sort of. Like, I'm not thinking how I'm supposed to be or what I'm doing. It's yeah. like I'm with engaged with this community. Yeah. Give me an example of that. Um, I mean there's a couple there's definitely many. The the most intense or the first one that I really recognized was in Indonesia when I was on my gap year and I was with ten other kids my age. Yeah. And we were just drawn together because we we're out of our comfort zone. Right. And so we just came together and like learned how to interact with each other but it was it wasn't I w- wasn't thinking what they thought of me necessarily I was right. just lost in being with them Part of another yeah yeah and another more recently was in Berlin I found a group of 10 other or like five to six other exchange students that we like we'd go dancing or go to the park and it, it just felt like we we're all on a similar wavelength and not concerned about, like we just, um, we had a similar goal just to enjoy each other and we like found found the, the wavelength that we all chimed into. Well, you're touching on something really interesting, which is, which is kind of cool. When you go to college for the first time <laughs> yeah. or you go experience something, you're with good people don't know you. Mm-hmm. And people have expectations. We all do. This is what Bubby does. This is what TJ does. This is how Jane reacts. It's kind of freeing to be in a new situation. Mm-hmm. And it's the beginner's mind. You have to learn to work as a group. There are no expectations. And I think people blossom when they're in those situations for the first time. Yeah. Getting put out of their comfort zone. But that might have been something you experienced in those situations. Yeah. I think the that also like that's kind of what I part of what I'm always striving for searching for is that's part that being part of curiosity that I'm just trying to expose myself to new things and people to grow my understanding yeah Yeah. Um, but it is also strange to come home and have the expectations that you're still the person you are when you left and so I guess it's up to you to be able to communicate, or up to me to be able to communicate how I've changed yeah. um, and how I see the world. Or not communicate if people have the wrong expectations. Yeah. You know, one of the 
greatest gifts as you get older is you don't care about what other people think nearly as much. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know why we shed that, but it's pretty freeing. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. What uh, on on that note of growing up, I guess if you were my age or around twenty, what would like looking at TJ sitting in the corner, twenty years old? What would you tell him to? See, would you would you give any advice to him? Wow, when I was twenty, yeah, I had, I was pretty happy. I I, I had a blessed, mm -hmm. blessed time there. But looking back, how I would have made life easier is I probably would have said, live with more intention. I think I intuitively knew that. You know, if I wanted to ride a Schwinn three speed to the beach over you know right over the mountains to do that, I would do it. I mean. I was blessed, but I would say part of what I think from age 20 to 40, I think I was more focused on self than I should have been. Mm -hmm. I wasn't quite as aware. And I think making a conscious effort to, I would just give my, one is I would have told myself, close your mouth <laughs> mm -hmm. when you meet someone and you listen, listen to understand. Because you already know everything you know. Mm -hmm. Why, when you're with someone new, wouldn't you want to learn something from them? And I think I was too busy caring what people thought about me. Mm -hmm. So I was always trying to impress people. Mm -hmm. And if I had to say it again, I would just say, just listen to and understand. And I think I think that would have, you know, not respond. Just listen to understand. And I, I think the other thing I would have said to myself is, uh, again, because we're all full of self, we have this flight or fight response when people say things to us. I would have said in in the book that I was going to give you, one of I, I picked that up from this book is take nothing personally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You have the choice to react or not react, take a space, but don't take anything personally. Pause, reflect, and then choose to say something or choose to walk away or choose to act. Mm -hmm. So I think I think I would have given myself that advice then. Because I think I was more reactive. I cared what people thought about me. And, you know, they had a lot of fun and did a lot of good stuff. But I, I don't think I lived as richly or deeply as I could have. Mm -hmm. You're in a good space now, it seems like. Just being here. <laughs> You're in a good space, yeah. yeah. We're only here a short time. And, yeah, we're pretty lucky. Yeah. All, not just me. All you. of us. Yeah. 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 The When you're talking about our ability to decide to how to react is like exactly how I my meditation is teaching me yeah and that, that's that's your exercise to get you to the four minute mile yeah yeah what what is your meditation practice like now? well tell me about yours I mean you, you you sort of went really deep with the 10-day retreat which I've never done yeah yeah but knowing you you're probably still doing something on a daily basis and mm -hmm. Um, well, so I, I think the first time I meditated was when my instructor in Indonesia said like, let's sit for 10 minutes and he kind of talked us through it Cool. and it was quite out there in my mind at that yeah. time. I was like, I've only, like, I, I hadn't practiced it at, in any realm. Um, and then I got to college at Pratt and there was a meditation club or course. Cool that I went to 
probably half the courses every Tuesday for the first year. Yeah. Um, and then I think I got the an app like Headspace and yeah, which is great. Did a bit of a practice, um, but it was always sort of off and on. Like I'd get very yeah. passionate about it and then not find myself sitting for a little while. Yeah. And then, um, what was it last? About a year ago, this time my buddy was coming to the U.S. from Australia, uh-huh. and we both know like had a similar um, understanding of how we. Like, well, I guess we had a similar interest in meditation, but like, uh, we didn't, I didn't have an understanding beyond like a few short, um, experiences as well as your gift. Was that last year? I was like three or four years ago. Or two. I think it was two years ago. But that was probably the first time I sat for, for an extended period of time. I think it was either 30 minutes or... It was, it was longer than I had before. Um, cool. And basically my buddy, um, said like heard about the Vipassana, um, retreat from Sam Harris's podcast. Oh, cool. And I also had a roommate who mentioned it at some point. He was like, I kind of want to do one of these 10 day Vipassana retreats. And when my roommate said it, I was like, wow, that sounds intense. Like I can't see myself doing that. Yeah. And then when my buddy asked last last time this year my perspective was just like I was nervous to think about doing that for 10 days but then I was like if I can have if any I'll learn something from this experience no matter what no matter what even if I'm miserable exactly something will come out so I'll learn something and then I showed up there not knowing what it would really be like um and to sit 11 hours a day for 10 days was like big stuff, a, a big step from yeah. sort of 20 minutes a day. Yeah. Um, and that was really the, the change in change in thinking in the sense of like seeing, seeing things as they are and taking like acting, but not out of reaction. Creating the um, space. Yeah. So I would have told my 20 year old self, <laughs> to meditate, but you know what? I'm not sure he would have listened. Mm-hmm. I think I think meditation is something um, that's learned. It's not taught. You have to be ready for it. Mm-hmm. You can't say to someone, you need to meditate. Mm-hmm. So that, that's cool. It sounds like you sort of came at it. You had a couple of touch points. Swing right, swing left. Yeah. So you find yourself doing it every day? I'm in the past, probably the past six months, it's been every other day for about 20 minutes. Good for you. Um, the last week since I've been out of school and had a little bit more time, yeah, I've been sitting for an hour. Um, good for you. And I mean, it's still, it's still a struggle, but it's, yeah, it's, it's a slow change every, yeah. every day. Yeah. I, I think it's like, it's recess for me. I mean, it's just, it's the highlight of my day. Mm-hmm. I mean, seriously, I love it. And, the benefits, of course, are beautiful, but it took me a long time to get there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is what does it look like? Your your practice daily. You know, I'll try in the morning to do an hour, an hour and a half, mm-hmm. just to get you know peaceful abiding. I'll do some meta in there, which is loving finding people who would normally piss me off, mm-hmm. just thinking kind thoughts, mm-hmm. so I won't be reactive to them. My my initial reaction will be, I hope you're well. I hope mm-hmm. you get through this. Mm-hmm. Um, but sort of 
the way I sort of view it, it's sort of like when you learn to telemark ski, you make one turn and then you rest and you slide down. And I think the key is to figure out how to link turns. And when you see someone telemarking, they're linking the turns. Mm -hmm. And if you think of the slope sort of as our day, a lot of us are just going straight down. Mm -hmm. But I, I find when I'm in the car, I'll take a deep breath and just say, thank you. I can't believe it started on the first. Mm -hmm. I'll take some deep breaths and say, how cool. So when I'm driving, sometimes I'll try to focus. It'll come to be when I'm in an elevator, mm -hmm. you know. So I'm, I'm just trying to find all the dry spots in the day where I can sort of place that. And if I find myself saying I'm pissed off at someone, I go, how interesting. Mm -hmm. I got eight more floors. I may as well take some good breaths and feel good about stuff. Mm -hmm. So I think my practice is sort of unconsciously now. I'll find myself at different times kind of stepping into it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I think the key is just sitting down and, and getting comfortable and learning to enjoy it and learning not to judge it. And so... Yeah. When when did that hour and a half, when did you start meditating that often or daily? I think about 20 years ago, but it, it, it the hour has probably been last mm -hmm. 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. And then to be able to link the turns probably been the last two or three years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I still go there. I can get pissed off at stupid stuff. Yeah, I yeah. just don't get there as often. Mm -hmm. And what the beautiful part is when I am there, I, I don't stay nearly as long. I mean, I can mm -hmm. just this is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if I can let go of that. Anyway, I'm right. I think meditation's just awesome. Mm -hmm. I do as well. Um, and, go ahead. No. I was just going to sort of transition back to before your 20 year old self. What? What did you imagine yourself doing when you were a kid? So... Like, like say you're 10 years old, what were you dreaming of? You know, that's pretty interesting, you know. Of course, I was going to be a professional football player. And mm -hmm. if that didn't work it out, I had baseball as a backup. Mm -hmm. I, I thought I was going to be a doctor. Mm -hmm. And um, my dad actually talked me out of it. And he goes, being a doctor is great, but you have to do it because you love helping people in science. Mm -hmm. But he's And he's a doctor, and... You know, I thought there was, for reasons I shied away. And then I thought, I loved math and numbers and look, trying to figure stuff out. And I thought I was going to be a, a uh, <laughs> I thought I was going to be a math professor of applied math or physics. Mm -hmm. And um, when I got to Stanford, when I was at school, I did pretty well. And, you know, I had a passion for it and did well. And it was a really good school. And I was taking math classes junior and senior year at UCLA. And so when I came to college, I had completed all my math requirements. So mm -hmm. I was taking graduate level math courses as a freshman. Mm -hmm. So a graduate level course when you're in college is five or six guys sitting in a room with a professor doing big, really way out there, big right. picture stuff, which I loved. Mm -hmm. But I want you to picture this. It's spring quarter, Northern California, and Econ 101. You have to take Econ 101. Mm -hmm. And there's this auditorium filled with 19-year-olds, and half of them are girls, mm -hmm. wearing summer dresses, they're a little, and they're a little tan. And I'm with five guys with scraggly beards and pimples <laughs> that have absolutely no social skills. <laughs> and then it dawned on me, do I want to spend four years with these guys, or do I want to spend four years there? And um, I, I had a, you know, a Nobel Prize winning advisor for, for econ and he was great and he got me excited girly and 
What was his name? Gurley. I can't even Professor Gurley. Okay. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I I got off on econ and then looked around me and saw the guys who were two or three years older who had the most interesting careers. Mm-hmm. I go, well, that guy had a pretty interesting career. How? What do I need to go to be there in two years? Mm-hmm. So I sort of just looked around and said, who do I want to be in three years? So I, that's sort of how I thought about it. How did you, did you just watch them or did you talk Yeah, to I just, or? and then I would talk to them yeah. and see what you're doing. And I mean, this was, it was, life was so much simpler. My school had one of the best graduate schools of business in the country. Mm-hmm. And as an undergrad, I went to my advisor and I said, look, I've taken all my courses. I've taken graduate courses. Is, is there any reason I could not, you know, take a course at the business school? I was taking graduate level econ. I was taking graduate level math. Could I take a graduate level business school? Mm-hmm. And he goes, no one's, no one's ever asked me that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, um, he says, sure, why don't you take one, see if you liked it. He walked over and got my permission. So I wanted to see what business school was. And I, I loved the class and did great. And mm-hmm. I was actually the top of the class. So when I went to get a recommendation to go to the same business school, yeah. one of the professors said he's already been in my class and was the top student. So, so, so that, was, that was pretty easy. So, I mean, just trying to figure things out, mm-hmm. how to get a path. What did, what did you do right out of college? So I had the choice to go... Or after grad school? Uh, well, for college, I could have gone to right to graduate school. Okay. But I didn't have the money, and I didn't think I had the experience. So I started a company. I graduated two semesters, two quarters early. Mm-hmm. So I started a company, and I ran the company. And then I went to work at Bain & Company, which what, was awesome. Well, first, what was the company you started? It was I an think amazing I... events. Mm-hmm. And it was right at the time that all the high-tech companies in the Valley were going nuts. And I had been in student government and put on big events mm-hmm. with one of the other persons in student government. We just started calling on alumni who had started these companies and said, if you ever want to have a big event. Mm-hmm. And so we started putting on big events for high-tech companies. How long did you do that for? Uh, I did that for a year and a half. Then I gave my shares for a dollar to my partner. That company's still in business, by the what, way. What it still called? Amazing events. Amazing events. Yeah. Jeez. Well, it was it, it was in business as of last summer. I ran okay. into a guy who had used them for an event, <laughs> and so that was fun. Then I went to Bain because I wanted to. You know, it was a young company with a lot of people. I said I want to be like those guys. A lot of guys gravitated towards that. Mm-hmm. So I moved to Boston, and didn't have a job. I just knocked on their door. And, was very lucky, and I'd never really been outside of California, so it, it was it was a lovely chance to get to see a different part of the country. How long were you there? Year and a half. And then it was. Then I went back to the West Coast for graduate school. Got yeah. it. What? Uh, who do you think of when you think of the most uh, passionate person? You. Be beyond beyond anyone in the room or in the house. Maggie Young count. Okay. <laughs> That's a good quote. In my peer group, the people I know would have to be a guy I hadn't met in Boston who's still a very close friend, uh, Dr. Ned Patz. Okay. Now, speaking of guys who are infinitely curious, mm-hmm. he, he took the cake. <laughs> so uh, he was, I shared a house with a bunch of Harvard law students. It was a big old house in Cambridge. Mm-hmm. And there was one guy who was in the house for like three weeks at a time and then gone for three weeks, three weeks. 
and he was younger than everybody else. I was like 22, the grad students were like 23 or 24. He looked like he was 18 or 19. Mm -hmm. So finally, you know, I got in the kitchen, had a beer, and just started talking to him. And he had graduated college early, and he was getting a PhD in physics at MIT, and he was getting his MD at Hopkins. Mm -hmm. <laughs> at like the two, same time. At the same and that's time. That's why he was away for a few yeah, weeks. Yeah. So I don't know how he's doing it. And so he just became a good friend. We became adventure buddies. And he just, he always looked at the world differently, kind of like you do, what, which is kind of cool. What would you point out specifically that, how, how was he looking at it differently? So for example, this guy actually may cure cancer. So we'll, we'll know in a couple of months. But what, for example, this is the way Ned looks at the world. Mm -hmm. Everybody is genetically engineering mutations of genes to try and cure cancer. And we're, we're, we're pretty close. I think we're like in the red zone of finding a way to cure cancer. So Ned runs the radiology department at Duke, which is a world-class university. Mm -hmm. And you know what a bell-shaped curve yeah. is. I don't know why, but everything in life is in a bell-shaped curve, mm -hmm. okay, which is truly amazing. And he got, he would be reading radiologists read x-rays and he focused on lung cancer. In over 20 years of doing this, he noticed it had a bell-shaped curve. There was always 1% that had a miracle. And you heard about it. people pray, the tumor's gone, they don't know why the tumor's gone. Mm -hmm. That happens. Mm -hmm. That happens. Yeah. So he went back and figured out who all these people were who had these miraculous cures. And he called their doctors and are they still alive? Do you mind if I take a look at their blood? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he just wanted to know what they had. Different than other people. Right. And so he found out they all had this one type of G. Okay. And he thought that was really interesting. And so he's, he's a guy who loves ideas, but he loves execution. So he got very excited. And then he figured out one of the reasons cancer grows is it has sort of like a shell like a turtle. So when your immune system comes, it's protected and it can mutate and it's got this protective shell. So he took the blood from these miracle survivors yeah. that have this one mutated gene and he put it in a dish just to see what would happen. Mm -hmm. And basically it dissolved the shell around the cancer. The gene that they had was right. taking away the cancer, getting, yeah. yeah. He thought that was pretty interesting. Jeez. So and he so he found some mice with tumors. Yeah. Injected them in, and it took the shell off the tumors. Mm -hmm. And the body's immune system did that. Then he tried it with cats, mm -hmm. and then he went out and got a patent and found a way to engineer that gene. And how do you how do you give someone? A gene in like how do you apply that to curing? Someone? So you clone you clone a bunch of these genes mm -hmm. and then you just put it in your bloodstream. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of cancer cures are very dangerous because you know they're created in labs and no one knows what the side effects are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it might kill cancer, but we don't know what else it's going to kill. We do know that this is already found in humans, mm -hmm. <laughs> and the humans have survived with it. So this is. He will be on, instead of going to a phase one test on patients, which could take 10 or 20 years by the FDA, the FDA may have him in April putting this in patients. Jeez. So he's excited. He's humble. And it's just, it's just fun. Yeah. It's an amazing way. Of but wouldn't, wouldn't it be fun to wake up every morning and know you have a chance to cure cancer? That's crazy. But the way he thought about it, why didn't anyone else 
see that. Look at why these 1% survived. Why didn't they see what they had in common? Mm -hmm. Then figure out why it's... I digress. I'm not listening, which I'll notice when I listen to your podcast. But this was so exciting. So we have a group of guys from these Boston days and the six of us go skiing every year for the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. So we've been listening to Ned's progress. It's like a boy's life every year. Wow, yeah. And he'd come back more excited and they all have this one gene. I can't believe I can replicate this gene. And so a couple guys were investment bankers and some pretty wealthy guys. So the guys listening to this over 10 years are the guys who helped fund fund the company. So that... But again, it was just in slow motion listening every year he would tell about his progress. And then I guess in April or May, it's, he's, you know, he's the only human produced, you know, solution yeah. for, for cancer. So Jeez. he's passionate. Yep. That makes sense. He's humble. He's kind. He's, well, there's <laughs> another passionate person there. That's <laughs> Jane looking in his way. Um, on... On that ne- well, real quick, have you read Anti-Fragile? I have not. Tell me about it. Well, I I read the summary of it, um, or I listened. There's an audible like forty-five minute summary of it, and Scout's reading it right now. Um, but what I understand it to be is basically that there there's resiliency, and then there's fragility is typically how we think of it. Um, and resiliency, I think of like as a something that is strong and like when it breaks then it comes it can, back stronger it comes well no it comes back the same more the same as what it is um like it it like well fragility is just something breaking or something that is easily broken and then um resilience is like getting broken and then coming back, I think to sort of that same mold that it was in before. Yeah. And then anti-fragility is getting broken and then bouncing back stronger. Okay. And to think of it as, I think the best way to think of it is as a muscle, like to make a muscle stronger, you, you have, have to, break, yeah, you have to get, make little tears in it by working out and then it grows back stronger. Yeah. Um, but sort of tying that into, um, I guess some friends and family that we know that have either addictions or diseases. Yeah. And it, it seems that I, I don't know how exactly this is tied into anti-fragility, but it's like people come together when there are times of, uh, stress or difficulty. And when times are easy, it's, it's Hard. harder to connect, connect. Um, do you have any thoughts on, on that? So there's a couple like most things, there's a couple of things interwoven there. Let's just talk about why when difficult times, mm-hmm. 9-11. You have a city where people never say hello to each other. They're going through a lot of type A's. But the day after 9-11, the city came together and connected. Mm-hmm. And I think when something takes us, we have such tunnel vision. We try and view the world. And when something shakes it away... Mm-hmm. Like looking at a beautiful view or seeing the birth of your baby, yeah. there's a break with self. Mm-hmm. Kind of like we talked about when you go to a new place and you don't know everybody, that's a break from your routine, a break with self. Mm-hmm. I think when those are the breaks, we're designed to reach for community. Mm-hmm. And I think what we were talking that when we're when our routine with self is broken mm-hmm. through something horrible, when we break with self. 
we know and believe that there's something bigger or greater than us. Mm -hmm. After the Boston Marathon, it was more important to be Boston strong mm -hmm. than to be Yourself. Bobby Vernon trying yeah. to get a PhD in something. Mm -hmm. So I think when there's something of great beauty, but more so when there's, if we weren't able to come together, we would never have survived. And I think as humans, evolution has designed us to when the shit hits the fan, Mm -hmm. Those of us who can come together and connect with something bigger than ourselves mm -hmm. is not only just resilience for us, it's resilience for our species. Mm -hmm. So that I, I, I'm a big believer on, and again, I don't wish this on anybody. Yeah, and I think yeah. meditation actually is a chance to, to let go of self without that. But it's, if you think of the Boston Marathon, you think of 9-11. Mm -hmm. You think of tragedy hitting one of your friends or one of your family members. Yeah. The way people come together is beautiful. Do you, I totally agree. And I feel, I sense that in meditation as well, that <clears throat> you're, or in just the states of awe, which yeah. is interesting because I talked to Kendra yeah. and she's all about awe. The queen of awe. Yeah, Kendra. exactly. Um, and, but I guess I'm, I'm wondering, like, I feel like meditation is a, it starts with like yourself, but there's also these experiences, the, the experiences of like we're talking about are often with a big community of people. Like yeah. how could, how could we generate more of this connection without the bad stuff? Yeah. Without creating the, the chaos. So there's a couple ways. And again, again, it's sort of religion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We, we need something bigger than ourselves. Breaking out through the shell of self mm -hmm. leads us to, to, I think, a more beautiful life and a life of higher intention. Mm -hmm. Tragedy can do it. But I think people who can let go of themselves or the other question, I'm going to, let's take a yeah. yellow sticky note and come yeah. back to yeah. this. Yeah. But the question is, why does meditation work? Kind of like my friend Ned discovered this gene works, mm -hmm. but correlation's not causation, right? Mm -hmm. Why? For whatever reason, is you have two states in your body. One is your sympathetic nervous system, okay. which is cortisol, adrenaline, it's fight or flight. And we're designed for fight or flight because for the first 200,000 years of we're here, That's fight or flight same. works. Yeah. Someone says you're a jerk, you punch them in the nose. Yeah. You're I mean, more likely to get to the that. next yeah. round of the gene pool. What interesting is physiologically, when you meditate, you basically turn on your parasympathetic nervous system, mm -hmm. which is throws in oxytocin, which is the mothering gene and dopamine and other things. Mm -hmm. And by training your body to be in the parasympathetic nervous system, you let go of self. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of the distance thing. You know, the Viktor Frankl, you have the choice yeah. between, you know, action and reaction. By putting the distance, you let go of self and the need to perverse self. And I think people who are spend their life in the parasympathetic nervous system and you train yourself to be in that, not just a meditation, but during the day, mm -hmm. you're more open mm -hmm. to being part of something bigger than yourself, which I think lets you to lead a life of higher intention. Yeah. And sort of, uh, I'm thinking the meditation, the parasympathetic nervous system is allowing you to separate from your, your identity. Like you're saying yourself, but like also to think. I feel like what causes a lot of separation between people is their identity of like, 
no, I'm this and you're that. Yeah. Instead of realizing like we're all part of this greater system. Right. And again, from an evolutionist standpoint, understand that. Mm -hmm. But if you think about what your best experiences are, it's being at the Super Bowl with Bronco fans. Mm -hmm. How beautiful is that? It's not, it's not you. You're, you are part of that community. Yeah. It's church and something good happens. Mm -hmm. You know, you're on a basketball team. Mm -hmm. I think we all strive to be bigger than ourselves. But when you're in the parasympathetic nervous system with meditation, we have something called the amygdala, which is the center of fear mm -hmm. in your fight or flight. People who've meditated for decades, their amygdala shrinks. Mm -hmm. Cortisol and adrenaline and stress grow your amygdala. Mm -hmm. And it's bigger because there's more shit to be afraid of. Yeah. But by putting the other neurochemicals in that you get and creating your parasympathetic nervous system, it actually physically shrinks. Mm -hmm. It's really training a muscle, basically. Thank you. That's a yeah. brilliant way of putting it. And when it's shrinking, when you're not going through life scared mm -hmm. and reactive and you're open, I think you're able to be part of something bigger. Which is kind of interesting, but it's, it's yeah. interesting to understand there's real science there. behind it. Yeah. Why does it feel so good? Maybe nature's trying to tell us something, right? There's, I think there's a reason it's such a hot topic now. Mm -hmm. what, what do you think is bringing it to such a hot topic? These days? I think, you know, when we think of evolution, it's not just the evolution of my genes. It's the genes of my family. It's the genes of our species. Mm -hmm. You know, 200,000 years ago when we were identical, the worst someone could do was take a stick and club and hit four or five people before he's wrestled to the ground and killed. Mm -hmm. Now someone can fly a jet into a World Trade Center. Yeah. Now someone can create a protocol so there's global warming. Mm -hmm. There are ex species extinction level events that our technology has enabled That's us able, to do, able, yeah. unless we can rise above that. Mm -hmm. And sort of. So I think. I think it's our species just telling us, wow. get your head out of your ass. Wow. Yeah, like if you want to survive, you're going to have to... And I think the timing's not coincidental that this is so huge now. And I don't know if it's conscious, but I think, it's... It's, I think species is trying to say, get your head out of your yeah. ass. And <laughs> I, I, I sort of wonder if it's the next, the next phase of religion, sort of, that a couple thousands of years ago these religions started to gain traction yeah and then but they also have caused a lot of separation these days yeah because if, the tribe got defended of people who think just like us mm -hmm. the tribe wasn't humanity yeah and that's where it's it's the religions are here and then hopefully meditation is above is above and people realize like yes we can have different it's not us versus them it's it's all of us it's us mm -hmm. And again, there are reasons evolutionary why we're so tribal. People who weren't drawn to tribes are gone. Didn't get a chance to stick around and think about whether they want to root for the Red Sox or the Patriots, right? Yeah. They're gone. Yeah. But I think we're now at a point for those who don't say us versus this tribe. Mm -hmm. We'll not get to be around a thousand years from now and have this type of discussion. Yeah. So I, I, I don't think it's a coincidence. Mm -hmm. No, I'm, that's interesting. That's opening my my understanding of meditation in relation to evolution, I guess. Yeah. 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 
And there's got to be a reason it feels so good, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Why do we lean into it? Yeah, I think also recently I've been thinking about how I, I am sort of losing my chain of thought, but it's like we're there. There are these rule, and evolution is the the rule. Yeah. But it is like it's pulling us back towards that at all times. Yeah. And I mean, we're always in it, but to realize all the things that are tied to that are just expansive. We're also here and able to have this discussion because people are not blind. If we were just blinded and didn't think we had free will, mm -hmm. we wouldn't be able to meditate or say, is this the right way to look at it? This yeah. church versus this church. Yeah. So I, the fact that we can have this discussion means evolution wants a certain segment of the population to be able to think about things differently. Mm -hmm. And it's funny you say makes us, evolution makes us think we have free will. Yeah. Is, is that saying that free will is the, or evolution is driving our, our, our will? I guess. So the answer is you're now way above my pay grade. <laughs> That's the correct answer. The answer after my second scotch is think about it this way with mm -hmm. free will. Look, I'm here living in this beautiful house in Boulder, Colorado, because I was white. Mm -hmm. I was born into an upper middle class family with a doctor and education was the most important thing in my family. I got to go to the right schools. I got to interact with the right people. And I'm here and I'm blessed, but it wasn't me and my free will. Mm -hmm. Now people can say there were probably a hundred kids who were brought up just like you, but they're not here. Mm -hmm. And I said, yes, but my genetics are different than those yeah, other, other yeah. people. And, and well, I'll let you go on, but the, my, it's, it's kind of a strange, I feel like I have a contradiction in my thinking. Well, let me let me get to the answer of yeah, that. I'm, yeah, a, yeah. I, I, I'm weaving in and out. Yep. Take the yellow sticky note down and look at it. Here's yep. the answer. We have free will in the moment. Okay. I can choose to have that third beer or not have that third beer and get in my car. Right. Mm -hmm. But so many things beyond our control led us to that specific moment. Okay. Mm -hmm. yep. So I think it was a, a pyramid. There were an infinite number of things that could have happened 30 years ago before I tried to think of drinking the beer. Yeah. If my father was an alcoholic and I knew there was alcoholic things, 29 years ago, I'd have a bunch of different choices, 28. So I think as we get to the moment, the amount of possible choices gets thinner and thinner and thinner and thinner until there really isn't a lot of at that yeah. motion. But I can still drink that. Th I can do a lot of things. But when I get to that moment, the base of infinite number of choices yeah. gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Now, the corollary to that is the next 20 years. I think it's sort of like an hourglass. Mm -hmm. My then ability, see the all my past decisions, all my genetics are bringing me to this moment. So my choices get narrower and narrower. Mm -hmm. But the good news is it's the inverse. And over the next 20 years of my life is infinite possibilities. Mm -hmm. I may not be able to dunk a basketball five minutes from now, yeah. but if I trained for three years just trying to dunk a basketball, that would be a real possibility. Mm -hmm. So I think it's kind of, I think our free will at this instant is very small mm -hmm. because of all the things that influenced us. But I think the free will for the next 20 years is infinite and I can make those little changes and but, figure but don't, it out. Don't, well, I think that the I you're talking about of I can make those choices like I feel like even my 
the way I speak right now or the words I'm choosing yeah. are because of my past experiences in my genes. Yeah. So is it, is it really that I'm making the choices? Even I understand. So I'm, I'm, there are two beers or a beer or not a beer. Yeah. And I feel like it's a hundred, I, I understand what you're saying, but I feel like it's a hundred percent the past experiences and the genes are directing the decision rather than this state of limbo, I guess, that you're, you're really getting out of the free will. Well, once again, on free will, I think everything's a bell-shaped curve. Mm -hmm. So for my behavior in the next five minutes, I can give you a 95% certainty how I'm going to act if I know all the information. Mm -hmm. Okay. But if five minutes from now, that bell-shaped curve gets wider and wider and wider. Mm -hmm. And I can think I can influence where I'm going to be five minutes from now. But I think I have more influence on what I'm going to be doing in a year from now. Mm -hmm. Do you follow me? Mm -hmm. And in 20 years. There's infinite possibility for any of us. And I think our next two minutes is pretty predetermined with 98%. Mm -hmm. But the next million two minutes, if you took the 2% of free will, mm -hmm. can map out a vastly wider range. I don't know if that I, makes sense or no, not. No, I'm, I'm picking up on it. And it's... I can control where I'm going to be in 20 years with a lot more certainty than I can control where I'm going to be in two minutes. But isn't it still your past experiences and your biology that have led to you thinking? But with 98% percent. Prob probability. Okay. But if I have the willpower to go to the other 2% and I can... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I like tying the... Or understanding the bell curve a little bit more in yeah. relation to that. But yeah, I think there's very, very little free will in what I'm going to do in the next two minutes. Mm-hmm because it's 98% determined by all the stuff we talked about. Mm -hmm. But that 2% is pretty important if you multiply it times the next 20 years. Yeah. I think the future can be pretty infinite. Do you have, thinking about those 20 years, do you have uh, any bigger picture goals for yourself or humanity? This is a great question. So the answer is yes. I, 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 I think I have a 98% certainty on what I want to do. Mm -hmm. I break life into three separate trimesters. <laughs> okay. Okay. First 30 years of your life, again, these are rough. Mm -hmm. You're pretty self-absorbed. The self's pretty important. You're worried about fun, your friends, school, getting ahead, getting a job. And then for a lot of us, the next 30 years is about family. Mm -hmm. Your family's more important than you are. Your career is more important than you are. Yep. And if you're blessed to have health and some resources when you're 60, you have another 30 years. And that can be anything you want it to be. Mm -hmm. And I would like it to be for something greater than myself. Obviously, my career, my, my, my company is more important than I am, but I would love to see it grow and, and be here for other people. Mm -hmm. I would love my family to be able to pass their values and have grandkids. Mm -hmm. But I really want to find a way to change the dial over the next 30 years. And I'm excited about, again, something greater than myself to wake up every morning and be excited to do. Mm -hmm. Do you have a vision for that? I have a couple of ideas. Do you want to share? Not, Not at all. <laughs> okay, fair enough. No, but yeah, it'll, we'll it'll probably be for the greater good. Okay, great. Uh, we'll, we'll slow it down in a sec. Um, what? Well, first, who would you, you mentioned who is the most passionate person you know but yeah in terms of who i talk to on this podcast who would you who do you see of anyone that you know that would be an interest to people 
trying to understand how people become passionate and have and find or create a purpose for themselves. You should talk to Dr. Ned Patz. He's, he's, he's truly amazing. Okay. Um, you know, another person, well, you should talk to your mom. It's a pretty amazing person. Okay. Your dad's amazing too, but your mom's, mm -hmm. as you know. Um, she thinks differently than other people. She that. really does. Yeah. And I think you are blessed because your dad is an executor and your mm -hmm. mom's a visionary. And I'm not going to give you any credit because there's only 2% free will in there. But that's Absolutely. that's a pretty good combination, yeah, right? Lucky for sure. Yeah, it gets back to evolution. Um, <laughs> I would talk to Ned. I, you talk to my 91-year-old dad who gets up every day. And okay. he started a medical product company. And he has a real passion for learning. Okay. So And he, he makes a difference in every community he's in. It's pretty, yeah. it's pretty cool. We're back after a little distraction. Um, <laughs> back to the Bobcast. <laughs> the, I, we mentioned both of the books you recommended I read recently, um, which were Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, yeah. which was great on that, um, in thinking that, you, or realizing that you have the decision of how to act. Right. That's, yeah, that's um, pretty impressive, right? Yeah. For a guy who's in that position. In that position is amazing. Yeah. And then the second was, um, surely joking, Mr. Feynman, in having that. Ability to see the world a different in a way. In a different way. Yeah. What, is there another book that you've gifted recently or gifted I, a lot? I think if you use Sapolsky, which he was just an incredibly good writer. Say his name again. Robert Sapolsky. Robert Sapolsky just on why we are because of evolutionary history. It's just a great way to think of, it just opened my mind okay. so much. It's is there been, one particular book? Uh, why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. I read it. Yeah. The, yep. You know, and the vampire bats and why we have the urge for revenge mm -hmm. and just from an evolutionary standpoint. Mm -hmm. And I think if you sort of interweave all those things and make a, you know, you, uh, there's sense, more than right? one truth and then mm -hmm. weaving those things together just sort of make a, a cool framework to view the world yeah sort of expand that uh expand that that space in my mind that i was talking about yeah yeah so it's talking about that sacred space which again we all do better um i was talking to your mom as you, your mom's wonderful twice a year we have tea and i get mm. to listen to her take on the world and, <laughs> yeah yeah and i I love your dad and he has such a great vision on business and stuff but your mom's more like you she, she and we were talking about athletics and how mindfulness is huge you know steve kerr and the warriors and mm -hmm. the chicago cubs you know all these people meditate but one thing that we were just sort of chatting about which kind of got me turned on was have you ever thought about an nfl place kicker okay okay if you have to think about the biggest pressure job in the world, the game's tied. NFL, there's probably 5 million people watching on TV. Mm -hmm. You are by yourself. Yeah, yeah. So when the ball snap, he doesn't just run out and he kick the ball. Mm -hmm. The first thing an NFL place kicker does is he takes three steps to the left, mm -hmm. takes a deep breath, the ball snap, and he kicks it. How beautiful for all of us if we could just take three steps to the left before we have an important decision wow. or ha we have something. And that breath. And a breath. Three steps to the left and a deep breath. And I just thought, if we're going to end it on a note. Yep. I, I think that that's the one thing I would just, three. we should all take three steps to the left. <laughs> Great. I think, I think that's a perfect 
perfect place to end it. Thank you for sharing your understanding and wisdom. We've got Bruce the dog looking at us through the window. Good. All right. Thank, thank you very you. much. Okay, guys, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the second episode of the Bub on Purpose podcast. If you would like to get show notes so that you didn't have to take notes from the learnings I hope you gathered during this episode, you can email bubonpurpose at gmail.com and you will get a response with all the show notes from this show. Also, I would love if you guys would send me suggestions in terms of what you did like, what you didn't like, or who you think I should interview next on the podcast. And again, please send that to bubonpurpose at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.